Broadway is the 23rd film written and directed by Woody Allen, first released in 1994. John Cusack stars as David Shane, a struggling playwright who agrees to take some mob money to put on his latest play. The catch, he has to cast a mobster's girl and face off with her bodyguard in more ways than one. Bullets Over Broadway is one of Woody Allen's very best films, and it mixes so many elements that makes Woody Allen great. The jazz era setting, the excellent costumes, the memorable characters, the big statement on the nature of art, and so much more. It swept the award season, and the audiences loved it too. Welcome to the Woody Allen Pages podcast from me, the creator of the Woody Allen Pages website. This week, episode four, we look at 1994's Bullets Over Broadway. As usual, we look at how the film was made, the good and the bad, and lots of fun facts. Of course, spoilers are everywhere. Bullets Over Broadway is the first and only writing collaboration between Woody Allen and Douglas McGrath. McGrath was a friend and writer, and Allen said that every so often he'd like to collaborate with someone and not have the process be so lonely. He wrote with Mickey Rose in the 60s and 70s. He wrote with Marshall Brickman in the 70s and on 1993's Manhattan Murder Mystery, the Woody Allen film that preceded this one. Yet in the 25 plus years since this film, Allen has never collaborated with another writer again, although McGrath, who also acts, has appeared in Allen's future films as an actor. At the time, McGrath had written for Saturday Night Live and had one screenwriting credit under his belt. 1993's Born Yesterday, a comedy that starred Melanie Griffith, John Goodman, and Don Johnson. It was a remake of a 1950 film, and both are adaptations of a Garson Cannon play. As the story goes, Alan gave McGrath five or so script ideas to work on. Two of the abandoned ideas ultimately turned into Small Time Crooks and The Curse of the Jade Scorpion. I think A Rainy Day in New York was one as well. But McGrath chose the one about a gangster who turned out to be a talented playwright. He thought that one was the least like treading old ground for Alan. It's interesting to know the ideas that Alan couldn't choose between, because Bullets Over Broadway turned out so much better than those other films. And when you think about it, they all share that same path of a broad comic premise with some nugget of philosophy behind it. How come this one came out so well? Well, we'll get into that. In the finished film, it's hard to see what's Alan's and what isn't. Alan used McGrath as a sounding board, but did all the actual putting of pen to page. So everything goes through Alan's filter, last and feels like Woody Allen. I don't think this film has any elements that makes it feel like there's another writer's influence on the script. If they never said it was a co-write, I doubt anyone would notice. But if it's like how Alan worked with Marshall Brickman, they both contributed ideas. Originally, Alan and McGrath developed the lead role of David, the playwright at the heart of the film, for Alan himself. He would be an older guy, perhaps a university professor that occasionally wrote acclaimed plays. But as the pair developed the film, they decided to make David more young and idealistic and threw some of the older character's views into Flender, played by Rob Reiner. Even though he's no longer the lead, you can still hear Alan's voice in the character of David, but it was no longer a role for Alan to play, and ultimately he would not appear at all. You can almost imagine when David is fighting for creative control, it's the words Alan himself might have used when fighting for full control of his filmmaking in real life. I'm an artist! 
and I won't change a word of my play to pander to some commercial Broadway audience. I'm not arguing with you. Do you see me arguing? I think your play is great as is. Yeah. It's real, it makes a point, it's confrontational. Then why won't you produce because it? Because I cannot afford another failure. Oh. David, David, the play is too heavy. But not everybody writes to distract. Uh. It's the theater's duty not just to entertain, but to transform men's souls. Oh, come on, come on. You're not one of your sidewalk effects down in Greenwich Village. This is Broadway. it's Broadway, but you said you believed in my play. Well, what do you want me to say? David, I'm tapped out. Maybe if we got some big time director interested, I, I could scare up some No, 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 no. I'm directing this one. Oh, will you listen to this guy? Where's your track record? I won't see my work mangled again. I've been through this twice before. Two powerful scripts could have been tremendous successes, and I had to sit back and watch actors change my dialogue and directors misinterpret everything. I know. I know, you're an artist. Now, let me tell you something, kid. That's the real world out there, and it's a lot rougher place than you think. Alan had seen his work, like his script for What's New Pussycat, much maligned and mangled by directors and the studio. Alan, of course, enjoys full creative control of his work. Along with Aging Down David, the pair quickly moved the film's setting to the 1920s. They didn't want to work in contemporary times and deal with a modern gangster or how Broadway is now. Of course, Alan loves this era anyway. Woody Allen has made more films set in the period between the two world wars than any other. Films like Zelig, Midnight in Paris, Curse of the Jade Scorpion, Magic in the Moonlight, The Purple Rose of Cairo, Sweet and Lowdown, and more are set in the 20s or 30s. When Allen announces a film and it's set in the jazz era, it's a bit like Scorsese announcing a film about crime. For Allen, this is a golden era. The music was great, the nightclubs were happening, Broadway was in its prime, the outfits and cars look killer. So why not throw all that together into one film? So we have a comedic premise and we have a great setting in the 1920s. And we have David the playwright who has his play taken over by a gangster. The play brings a structure to the film. We are putting on a show like so many Muppets films. And putting on a show films have that built-in tension. You know the show will come at the end of the film and it will either be a triumph or it will go horribly wrong. Alan knows a bit about playwriting. Before he made films, he wrote a couple of acclaimed plays, Don't Drink the Water and Play It Against Sam. Those were comedies, but he wrote a more serious play called The Floating Light Bulb that was performed in 1981. I assume Alan called on that experience of play table reads and how rehearsals work for this film. Yes, yes, we know. Oh, my goodness sake, I can't believe I'm here. <laughs> look at this. Look at this. Would you look? Oh, this old theatre. This church, so replete with memories, so full of ghosts. Mrs. Alvey, Uncle Vanya, there's Cordelia, here's Ophelia, Clytemnestra. Each performance a birth, each curtain. Alan is very good at upping the tension as we get closer to what we know must happen. Jennifer Tilly's Olive is just a time bomb. The moment David agrees to let her in his play, we know it's only going to end in one of two ways, really well or really the opposite of well. When Cheech turns out to be a natural talent and David decides to go with it, we know it's only going to cause more problems even though it's going to improve the play. Alan doesn't just set up a problem and watch it play out towards the end of the film with the big show. He actually stacks them up along the way. He adds Alan Sinclair, who has her own designs on the script. Warner Purcell's increasing weight problem can't help, and neither can his affair with Olive. Everything serves a single purpose, to make us worry about opening night. 
And over the course of the film, we seesaw from feeling like things might be okay to this will be a car crash and back again. In fact, there is a scene just before opening night where manager Julian, played by Jack Warden, and gangster Nick Valenti, played by Joe Vitarelli, have one last scene together. The scene doesn't advance the plot or teaches us anything new about these characters. It's just a short scene designed to remind us of one thing. Things are about to go wrong. Listen, when she gets here, tell her you're going to give us some new lines, you know, like we discussed. Yeah. Well, let me level with you, Mr. B. You mind if I call you Nick? You see, Nick, you don't fiddle with a winning show. Every script reaches a point where in the professional judgment of the producer, the director, you're finished. You can't distort the plot. <laughs> now, we're about ready to open. Changes could be harmful. No, the, the show is basically frozen. <laughs> Let's avoid confusion. Sure. She'll get some new fucking lines around million kneecaps to the dance floor. But of course, we care more than just about the play. There's a big ethical, philosophical question at the heart of the film that Alan asks, and then answers, is art worth a human life? It's funny because in Manhattan, one of Alan's most celebrated films, he declares that art is worth living for, but is it worth dying for? A scene near the start of the film lays out the whole story. It's great screenwriting. Alan sets up a scene where you are learning about the characters. They make this lofty statement designed to show you who they are. And of course, for David, that's not who he remains. You know, I think the mistake we women make is we fall in love with the artist. Hey, you guys, are you yes, listening? Yes, I'm we a... fall in love with the artist, not the man. I don't think it's that's a mistake. How is that a mistake? The artist makes the man. You can't separate it. No, no. Look, 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 let's say there was a burning building. Yes. And, yes. and you could rush in and you could save only one thing. Either yeah. the, the, the last known copy of Shakespeare's plays or some uh, anonymous human being. You cannot, well, what would you do? No, you no, cannot no, deprive the world of those you plays. Cannot. Correct. Bones on, David. Bones It's not an inanimate object. It's art. Art is life. It lives. Although there's some gunplay and cartoon violence, we don't expect a death for a long time in the film. But slowly, that little metaphor turns literal. And it's not David who ends up clashing with his apparent antagonist in Olive. It's Cheech, and David actually tries to save Olive. Let's say she was winning the play. Does that mean that she deserves to die? There was nowhere to fire her. What kind of inhuman monster are you? I think you'd better leave. I don't think I will. I think i better stay. You should be thanking me. We're both in this together. No, 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 we're not. Because I didn't want her dead, see? You understand what I'm saying? I'm not in it at all. I'm not in anything. Because I... You choose her over the show. Of course. Of course I do, yes. Which is David's journey? To go from hoity-toity, no-one-ruins-my-film kind of guy who brags about artistic integrity with other full-of-shit artists in the village to a man who will try and stand up to a gangster to save the life of someone he doesn't even like. It's very Woody Allen, and he puts these big ideas in the middle of his comedies. And Allen seems to share David's view in real life. He often talks about art as just one of the distractions that gets us through life. He often maintains that there's nothing special about the role of the artist in our lives, it's just another job. Allen said it best when talking about this film, that David is not the artist. Cheech is the artist. David actually compromises right from the beginning. Even he says it, he's trying and becomes okay, but it just comes naturally to Cheech. It's so interesting what Alan does with Cheech. He makes us change our minds about him several times over the course of the film, and he does it by making him the antagonist to many of the other characters. We hate Olive in a love-hate kind of way, so we like Cheech. But when he interrupts David during rehearsals, we think of him as cruel. And when David warms to him, we warm to him. But then he turns on David 
and we hate him. Then he betrays Nick Valenti and kind of stands up to him and we kind of want him to get away. I find it super interesting that David warms to Cheech at all. Conflict is the stuff of screenwriting in both drama and comedy and it would be easy for Cheech and David to further become enemies, for this to be a battle over the play. Instead, David concedes and the friendship kind of blossoms. They have some sweet scenes together and the whole putting on a show momentum of the film, when they team up, we think it's all going to be all right. It's a nice buddy film for a little while. Take it all back. It was a, it was a good suggestion and I apologize. Say hello to Violet. Hi, Violet. Hi, nice to meet you. Who's this teacher? He's a writer. I'm a struggling writer. Oh. Struggling writer. You want to know what the problem with your story is? What's the problem with my story? What, are you going to do some more rewrites? Well, sit down and take a load off your feet, all right? Mo, come on. Come here. Get him a beer. Why not? Of course, the pair don't really become friends and Cheech doesn't really change. He doesn't go on an emotional journey and he's kind of the same guy at the end as he is at the start. He starts to care about protecting his work, but that's just part of the loyal and violent streak he's always had. Cheech casually mentions that he's a killer and he just kills people because he decided they deserve it. Uh, so, well, Mr. Marks says that you um, actually rubbed a few people out, is that true? What is this, the third degree? Huh? Not, not at all. Then why are you saying that for? I'm just really... The truth is, I'm fascinated. I took care of a few guys. Why? 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 I don't know why. You know, they cheated Mr. V, they went back on the debt. I'll tell you one thing, I never rubbed out a guy who didn't deserve it. Alan just cleverly moves chess pieces around him to make it look like he's growing. That said, there was an alternate ending where Cheech lived and went on to Hollywood only to discover it's much more cutthroat than the mob. It's a terrible light-hearted ending that would have taken all the weight out of this film. The film now ends with a wonderful scene of David on the street talking about the artist versus the man. By the end, he's become Julian, arguing for compromise. Now here he is, having realised he's no artist and that artists have no right to create their own moral universe. The scene was a reshoot and apparently the only one, and it's vintage Woody Allen. It's hilarious highly quotable, cinematic, and manages to mix the whole theme of the film with a little bit of romance. It's really a lovely ending. Well, what if it turned out that I wasn't really an artist? I could love a man if he's not a real artist, but I couldn't love an artist if he's not a real man. Yeah, but this is all academic. She's with me now. And You're with me now. Do you want to be with Flender? Do you really want to be with Flender? Yes. Hey, Flender is a great lover. Oh. Hey, I slept with Flender. He was just okay. Rita, really? Rita, please. Just what okay. are you talking about? That was years ago during your free love period. I feel mm -hmm. it's relational. For me, he's great. Huh, interesting. Are you talking pure mechanics or what? His technique is prodigious. Prodigious? You're, you're confusing sex and love. No, for me, love is very deep. Sex only has to go a few inches. You're, 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 Before that, Alan makes an in-joke about endings. He has said many times that he regrets the happy ending he tacked onto the end of 1986's Hannah and His Sisters. In that film, he made one of the characters pregnant and delivered a great happy ending. Here, Cheech in his dying breath makes the same suggestion. I don't know what Alan is trying to say, but it's a fun shot at his own history. The last line in the play... Tell Sylvia Poston to say she's pregnant. It'll be a great finish. All that highfalutin stuff aside, there's plenty here that is funny for funny's sake with no higher meaning. There's plenty of broad humour to be mined from these cartoonish characters. I wonder if Alan based any of them from real life and from his experience working with actors 
and on Broadway. Warner Purcell seems to be some sort of Richard Burton type, although Orson Welles is a more likely inspiration for the ballooning weight problem. Manager Julian Marks looks like Jack Rollins, Alan's actual manager. Of course, there's the scene stealing Helen Sinclair. I wonder if Alan based her on any actual divas that he came across. Alan's worked with some divas, most recently Elaine Strict in the 1987 film September. Alan and Strict really hit it off, and I wonder if there's any character elements he took from her. She has the famous catchphrase, don't speak. It's such a broad joke. Helen puts her hand in David's mouth and asks him not to speak. It's oh so dramatic for Helen. Make a birthday wish. I have. I hope you get everything in life that you want. Helen, have you thought about what I said before about the way I feel? But I I, I want to express... Don't speak. Things that I want to tell don't you. speak. When we first no, I no, don't speak. Please, don't speak. Please, don't speak. No, 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 go. Go, gentle Scorpio, go. Your Pisces wishes you every happy return. Just one. Don't speak. So it's nice that Alan uses it as Cheech's final line. His very last words is to tell David not to speak. Just another dumb broad joke that totally lands for me. And it was apparently an improv by Parmenteri. It'll be a great finish. Oh, God. That's so no. great. Don't speak. Don't speak. Alan and his casting director, Juliet Taylor, put together an incredible cast here. The tension between the two of them, who had at this point worked together for over 20 years, was that Alan wanted to work with the same people, and Taylor wanted Alan to work with new people. They come to a good compromise here, there's some great returners and some great new people. John Cusack had worked with Alan in 1991's Shadows and Fog. Everyone else around him gets to be big and outrageous, whilst Cusack quietly holds the film down with a more honest performance. Yes, he totally does a Woody Allen impression, but does it well and sells it so easily. I think of films like The Curse of the Jade Scorpion and how much better it would have been with Cusack in the lead instead of Alan. Likely story. It's very hard to get good help these Sorry days. Sorry you guys had to hear that. I'm feeling fairly <laughs> some dizzy. problems with the firm. Really? What type of firm is it, Nick? <laughs> it's a don't stick your nose in other people's business and it won't get broken. Yeah. <laughs> That's what kind of I see, I see. Thank you. I'm feeling a bit unstable. I think maybe I'll go and check into a sanitarium and get the help that I need. And we'll talk later because it's been good. Yet, of the four main cast members, Cusack is the only one who wasn't nominated for an Academy Award because everyone else is just chewing up the screen. This was, incredibly, Chaz Parmenteri's second ever film role. He was great in A Bronx Tale, which was based on a play he wrote about his own life and was just stepping into Hollywood stardom. Alan got to see A Bronx Tale and cast him straight away. It's great casting because Parmenteri could play a gangster with no problems, but is also a genuine playwright. You ever think about doing anything else? Like what? Like writing? Writing, yeah. <laughs> Come on, I've been collecting for the mob since I was 16. You have a huge gift. Yeah. No, I'm serious. It's really, it's, it's uncanny. I mean, your instincts. Let me tell you something. Mag instincts. Listen it's, to me. Your play really, was very good. Really enviable. Your play was very good. You just didn't use your head. Sometimes people don't think. Well, sure, for you, it's simple, you know? For someone who can draw, it all seems logical. But for someone who can't... I studied playwriting with every teacher. I read every book. Let me tell you something about teachers. I hate teachers. Those blue-haired bitches used to whack us with rulers. Forget teachers. There was a boy I knew when I was growing up, and he played accordion. Yeah? And I loved accordion. 
and I practiced and I practiced and I got fluent. Yeah, he would squeeze one single note and the sound of it would make you cry. I used to want to dance. Cry. You know that? I mean it. I wanted yeah. to dance. You ever see George Raff dance? Jennifer Tilly is fun wherever she's on screen as Olive. She's a one-note character, and Alan actually uses her quite sparingly, and it's enough that we don't get sick of her. She's a fun agent of chaos, leaving destruction everywhere. See, you know what I'm doing, Cheeches? I'm working on a superior lap, like, ha, 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 he, he, he. <laughs> you know, I want to throw that in when Sylvia threatens to leave, and then I burst into tears. And look, you know, he says no, but what the hell kind of dull show is he putting on anyway? I don't know. But and of course, Diane Weist. She's worked with Alan many times before, but she's usually introverted and intense. Here, she's broad and loud, and she was initially scared to take on the role. But Alan wanted her, and she was rewarded with an Academy Award. The trick to finding the character for her, she said, was to speak lower. You must be joking. You want me to play some frumpy housewife who gets dumped for a flapper? Don't you remember who I am? Don't you know who you represent? I'm Helen Sinclair! Definitely, you are definitely Helen Sinclair. I look at you and I say, Helen Sinclair! But who better to play that role? Under whose direction? Some novice! He's the author! Of two flops! Julian says oh, directors that Julian. messed up those projects. Julian Marks! I do plays put on by Belasco or Sam Harris, not some Yiddish pants salesman turned producer. My ex-husband used to say, if you're going to go down, go down with the best of them. Which ex-husband? Oh, I don't know which ex-husband. The one with the mustache. I can kind of keep listing people. Jack Warden, Jim Broadbent, Tracy Ullman, Mary Louise Parker. All great. And all look like they were having fun. And then there's Rob Reiner, who's just looking at him. He's constantly hilarious. I would love to see the further adventures of Sheldon Flender. The point I'm making is that no truly great artist has ever been appreciated in his life. No, 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 no. Take take, take, uh, 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 Van Gogh or or Edgar Allan Poe. Poe died poor and freezing with with his cat curled on his feet. David, don't give up on it. Maybe it'll be produced posthumously. You know, I, 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 I have never had a play produced. And it's right, and I've written one play every year for the past 20 years. Yes, but that's because you're a genius. And the proof is that both common people and intellectuals find your work completely incoherent. Means you're a genius. The production went fairly smoothly. No one got recast, no large reshoots, just another delightful film, and knocked out at record time if, if it was any other director. So with a killer script and a killer cast all set, we have to talk about the production and the production values. Back as the cinematographer is Carlo De Palma, who is making his eighth film with Alan. He had more recently developed an erratic handheld camera style in Husbands and Wives and Manhattan Murder Mystery, but they dial it back here to be something more conventional. This film isn't about the camera or the point of view, but they do keep one element from the previous couple of films, which is shooting long takes, many of them lasting well over two minutes. The feeling we get is like someone filming an actual stage play, and the acting has some unnatural gaps you wouldn't get in a conventional film that would have cut them out. Yet the performances were natural and great. I particularly love the long scene where David confronts Cheech in the pool hall. The camera lets the pair of actors walk right to the back of the room, and we lose sight of them at times, and we're almost just spying in on the action. Cusack and Parmentary act the shit out of it too. How could you? How could you? Nobody's gonna roam my play. Oh, your play? That's the second time you called it your play. All right, our play. Didn't it cut you up inside to hear us say it, huh? We would have survived it. Survived it? Yes. Is that what you want? When we had a great thing, a thing of beauty? But she's to kill her. She was a tramp. It's a free country. 
Then leave me alone. No, I will not leave you alone. Didn't anybody ever teach you that it's wrong, that it's morally wrong, that it's a sin to kill? Who am I talking to? Jesus Christ! Then there's the colour. The film is so warm. Everything is red and yellow, and it's doubled down with sets that emphasise those warm tones. It's kind of sepia tone nostalgia, but it's actually glowing and alive, not stuck in a photo. Your eyes adjust, but if you step back and look at some of the scenes, it's just red. Even Carla De Palma remarked that everyone looked like tomatoes. This isn't the picture-perfect city postcards that Alan would make a decade later in Europe, and it's not one of those widescreen urban beauties that Gordon Willis shot for Alan in films like Manhattan. This is something more raw. The extreme palette makes it look rough and tough. Alan actually worked on this film with a little extra budget than usual. That extra cost went to costumes, cars and sets. Alan and his team found enough Art Deco locations to pass muster, like the Edison Hotel, which was constructed in 1931, and the New Yorker, constructed in 1930. They'd also dressed down a couple of streets in Manhattan and Brooklyn. Some stock footage is used to set the scene, and of course there's always Central Park, which is still wonderfully Central Park. This is my favourite spot in the park. And in winter, when it's covered with snow, at about 4.30 in the afternoon, when it's just getting dark and the lights come on, it's all misty. And you can just see the silhouettes of the Manhattan skyline through the trees. And it's magical. It's magical. Academy Award nominations were given to the production designers Santo Laquasto and Susan Bode, as well as to costume designer Jeffrey Curlin. Obviously, the most showy stuff gets the praise. The incredible costumes for the diva Helen Sinclair are obviously fantastic. But I really love David, who is always subtly dishevelled compared to the sharp-dressing gangsters. That said, Alan's budgets were still incredibly low compared to just about anyone else. Which is a long way for me to make the point that this feels a bit more raw than your usual comedy films. The long takes and the interesting style gives a feel of independent cinema. It's a bit like Iggy Pop doing an ABBA cover. That tension is delicious, and it's what is missing from some of Alan's later comedies like anything else. And it helped that this film was in the mid-90s when we lived in a new age of indie-American cinema. Quentin Tarantino, Kevin Smith, and Steven Soderbergh were all the rage, creating a scene that sat away from mainstream blockbusters, but was quickly finding an audience. This film is more in common with Clerks and the future mumblecore scene than, say, Dumb and Dumber. And after a handful of films with very little music, Alan returns to a jazzy score and uses enough songs to warrant the release of a commercial soundtrack. It had actually been 1987's radio days since he last had a commercial soundtrack, seven years and seven films earlier. Only some of it was score. Cheech has Upper Lazy River as a recurring theme, but most of the music comes from the world of the film. We hang out in ballrooms and nightclubs where music plays. There's a couple of arranged numbers at the nightclub put together by regular Alan contributor Dick Hyman. The main credit song is Toot Toot Tootsie, performed by Al Jolson. It's a goodbye song that was a Broadway hit in 1922, and helps to set the vibe of the film that follows. But there doesn't seem to be a bigger connection than that, and the song wasn't even used in the Bullets Over Broadway musical, which we'll talk about. Bullets Over Broadway was released in the US on the 21st of October, 1994. It played several film festivals before that, including a world premiere at the Venice Film Festival, and then playing Toronto, Chicago, and New York. This was Alan's first film with a new studio, one made just for him. Sweetland Films was started by Alan's close friend, Jean Demanian, and her husband, Jacques Safra. The film company started as a vehicle for Alan, 
and essentially turned him into an independent filmmaker. They would produce Alan's films for the rest of the 90s, although the deal would end in acrimony. In the meantime, though, they were willing to gamble a little extra on Alan to see what the return would be like, and the returns were good. Bullets Over Broadway was Alan's most critically acclaimed and commercially successful film of the entire 1990s. Probably because of the Sweetland deal, Alan actually did a series of interviews about the film. He allowed for a colourful poster featuring members of the cast, and they appear to have done a photo shoot for the poster, not just using a shot from the film. And there was also that commercially released soundtrack. This all felt like Alan actually making some concessions to be liked. And like it, people did. The common perception, especially around this time, was that Alan's best work is the films he was in. They always did better at the box office too. This film put that idea kind of to rest. Until he hit on Match Point in 2005, this would be Alan's most successful film where he didn't appear behind interiors. And interiors really only got there because it followed Annie Hall. I like it a lot too. For my money, this is up there with Alan's five-star work. This is up there with Hannah and his sisters or Crimes and Misdemeanors, Midnight in Paris and all that. Alan would continue to try and mix comedy with deeper ideas, but the mix of this one is really great. It's amazing how Alan sets up a bunch of chaos at the start and just lets them all run their course. But this is a putting on a show film that gets derailed by the great characters. The final show ends up not being what we remember. We remember the great characters, the laugh out loud moments, and just the feel of the film. Alan would make funnier films and would mix comedy with deeper ideas again and again, and he'll kind of get it right again, but he gets it really right here. I love how indie this film feels with its long takes and natural performances that mixes with the cartoonish characters and the broad jokes. This film swept the awards and was a box office hit. But for some reason, it feels like it's not considered in that Woody Allen top tier. Okay, it's not groundbreaking cinema like Annie Hall or Manhattan, but for any other director, like one who didn't have four or five films that changed the course of cinematic history, this would be a career high. You can't see mama at all. Some fun facts about Bullets Over Broadway. And look, let's get to the main one. Bullets Over Broadway got a second life in 2014 as a musical. Over the years, Alan had gotten offers to adapt the musical for one of his films. Bullets was always a suggestion, as was The Purple Rose of Cairo, and even Annie Hall. But Alan never liked to look back and turn down all the offers. The pioneer for all this is Alan's old colleague and occasional rival, Mel Brooks. Brooks had turned his film The Producers into a successful musical, so successful that it became another feature film, this time with the songs. Brooks followed it up with a musical adaptation of his film Young Frankenstein. It also helped that Alan's old writing partner on Annie Hall in Manhattan, Marshall Brickman, had written the book for Jersey Boys, another hugely successful musical. Alan and Brickman remained friends and they would talk about Jersey Boys, planting a seed in Alan to give a musical a try. So after many decades, in 2014, the Bullets Over Broadway musical finally happened. Susan Stroman was chosen to direct and do the choreography, something she had done for both the producers and Young Frankenstein. Alan wrote the book, although it did not change much from the original script. Alan also set the creative direction, 
being in charge of the casting and the music, and in both he made crucial decisions. For casting, Zach Braff was given the role of David Shane. It was a good call. Braff was a star, he was the right kind of affable, and could play being overwhelmed. He had worked with Alan before, playing Alan's son in Manhattan Murder Mystery in a very early role. For the scene-stealing turn of Helen Sinclair, every Broadway diva was fighting for the role. Broadway is full of Helen Sinclairs, the older eccentric woman with a big, big voice. The role ultimately went to Marin Massey, beating out legends like Patti Lapone and two divas who had appeared in Alan films before, Betty Buckley and Bernadette Peters. These are big stars who usually don't audition for anyone, but they auditioned for Alan. The rest of the cast was rounded out by relative newcomers. One was Nick Cadero, who would go on to be nominated for his first Tony Award in the role of Cheech. He was a standout, beating out Bobby Cannavale for the role, who recently starred in Blue Jasmine. Chaz Parmenteri, the original Cheech, and Cadero became friends. And then in 2016, Parmenteri turned his 1993 film, A Bronx Tale, into a musical. And of course, cast Cordero in the role of Sonny, the part that Parmenteri played in the film. Sadly, Cordero died of complications from COVID shortly before the recording of this episode. If we skip to the end, the Bullets of a Broadway musical was not a runaway success and failed to match the runs of the producers or Jersey Boys. I mean, very few of them are, and Bullets earned its share of Tony Awards and ran for over 100 performances and went on tour around America and the world. But Broadway's fickle and star power and critical acclaim are everything. I wonder if Zach Braff was joined by Bobby Cannavale and Bernadette Peters and other huge stars in the marquee, what that would have meant for the show. The other strange thing for the musical was the music choice. There was no original songs. Alan opted to use existing early 20th century jazz songs, many of which had appeared in the original film. The songs like Upper Lazy River and Let's Misbehave are great in themselves, but I'm not sure how much it drew audiences. Jersey Boys is a jukebox musical with reimagined versions of big hits. The producers had new songs that were funny and fresh. Bullets over Broadway had dated jazz standards. Yes, they were arranged for the stage, but people were not queuing up to hear another version of Let's Misbehave. The choice of being a jukebox musical is stranger because Alan often talked about wanting to do a proper musical with proper composers. He had also done the Jazz Standards musical with Everyone Says I Love You in 1996. It's so hard to have a hit on Broadway. Everything has to work. And the music choices here just wasn't something that worked. I never got to see the musical. Apparently they filmed a performance that has never been released. I would love to see it one day. And now other fun facts. The Sopranos would premiere five years after this film's release in 1999. It's no surprise that some of the cast went on to star in that show with all the gangsters and stuff. Notably, Tony Sirico and Eddie Falco. Vincent Pastor, who plays Big Pussy in The Sopranos, would have a role in the Bullets Over Broadway musical. And finally, this is the only time where Alan has taken someone else's work for the title of a film. Bullets Over Broadway was the name of a 1955 sketch from the Sid Caesar show. Alan worked for Sid a few years later as a comedy writer. Alan didn't just steal the title though, he did call Caesar and got his permission. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Woody Allen Pages podcast. 
I would love to know what you think of Bullets Over Broadway, or if you've got a chance to see the musical. I've been getting some great comments about the first few episodes, and I will do that feedback episode, so please keep your feedback coming in. If you want to share your thoughts, let me know at woodyallenpages at gmail.com. I have a Patreon! And we have patrons to thank. Thanks to Jeffrey Davey from Dublin, whose favourite films are Match Point, Crimes and Misdemeanors, Annie Hall and Manhattan, all great films. If you are a patron at the highest rate, you get a free digital copy of my books and the first batch would have gone out by now. So thanks, Jeffrey, and thanks, everyone, for supporting us. What books? Well, I have written books on Woody Allen. They're the Woody Allen Film Guides, three volumes of books that cover everything about each film, the making of, the production, filled with trivia, all the locations, all the music cues, all the references, and so much more. Buying one is a great way of supporting me and this podcast and the website. Or you can buy some merch featuring the artwork used for this podcast. Someone actually bought a massive poster of it and hung it up on their wall, and it looks really cool. There's a link to the photo in the show notes. A no-cost way of supporting us is to give the podcast a review. Wherever you found us, go and give us a five-star review. Five stars will do. Or leave a comment as well. I'd love to know what you think. The website is, as always, woodyallenpages.com. You can follow us on social media pretty much everywhere at Woody Allen Pages. I'll announce what the next episode is on socials first. Speaking of which, next week we look at a Woody Allen film that was one of his so-called return to form films that takes a swerve halfway through to somewhere else completely. Thanks for listening. If you'd be just so sweet and only meet your fate, dear, would be the great event of 19... Ha-ha! Look who's here, the big Broadway success! I don't write hits. My plays are art. They're written specifically to go unproduced. Is that...